Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I am joined by colleagues and friends, and we're going to further discuss the issue of drug safety warnings from the FDA regarding JAK inhibitors. Um, I'll ask my friends to introduce themselves. Kath, why don't you start? Sure, Catherine Dow, I'm in Dallas. I'm Jack's neighbor down the street and I feed him. <laughs> let's, let's divert this podcast into another topic. My favorite foods, no, Rachel? <laughs> Hi, I'm Rachel Tate. I'm in West Palm Beach. I also like to be fed by cat. So, <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. I'm um, Jeff Sparks in Boston, Massachusetts. And Bill. Bill Shergi from Huntsville, Alabama. Okay, so for those of you who are tuning in wondering what's this all about, um, as you know, in I think 2018, there were issues regarding this. 1133 study from Pfizer, the oral surveillance study where there were um, questions of blood clots and whatnot in February 2019 and July of 2019, the interim analyses of the oral surveillance study, again, with tofacitinib being given to versus uh, tofacitinib at five milligrams BID, 10 milligrams BID versus a TNF inhibitor given to over 5,000 patients in a long-term safety study Patients enrolled were high-risk patients over the age of 50 with at least one cardiovascular risk factor, and they were specifically looking at cardiovascular outcomes and even cancer. So going, these are high-risk patients to go into this study. So the interim analyses came out um, in February and July of 2019, where they said there's a higher risk of VTE and cardiac death at the 10 milligram BID dose. The only dose, only indication for which that dose is approved was at that time, ulcerative colitis still is actually, and they, may, they warned against that for everybody. And then um, earlier this year, February of this year, they came out and said, wait, we are now formally analyzing this issue and the same concerns, cardiovascular events, but now a cancer risk, maybe lung cancer, maybe lymphoma, but they were still in the process of doing their analysis and they wanted us just to know about it. Early on, they were saying, tell your patients not to stop the taking their drugs, but they should discuss it with their HCP. But, and they also recommended that doctors have a careful review of the risk-benefit ratio of starting a JAK inhibitor in patients given these possible concerns. So this all comes to a head um, this week on September the 1st, where they issue their uh, recommendations, which is that, that yes, there is a risk of cardiovascular events, including MI, also stroke, also of venous thromboembolic events, and of cancer, mainly lymphoma, at both doses, the five milligram BID and the 10 milligram BID with some strong warnings that are now gonna end up as a box warning for tofacitinib. But wait, tofacitinib was a drug under study. This was now extended to the other JAK inhibitors approved for inflammatory disorders. That means baricitinib and upatacitinib will carry the same box warning risk. As of today, those box warnings have not yet changed. There is mention of them on, some, on, the, on, the, on the Zelljance website on the face page they start talking about some of this, but the actual package insert hasn't changed yet that will. The companies need to work that out with the FDA. So, and, and the recommendations of the FDA are that your patients need to have a discussion with their doctor. Um, you need to, and this is for people on drug and people starting this drug. Uh, there are a lot of serious um, concerns here. Um, I wanna start by asking the group, let's start with, with Bill, uh, what's your reaction to this? Well, I was surprised that it was spread to all other drugs, at least initially. And then when I tried to let it soak in, I thought that 
the FDA has been under a lot of pressure lately. And also, they're mainly concerned about safety. I think they're just trying to be safe here at this point, and they're going to let it uh, end up where it lays, uh, whether they have the data for the other drugs or not. Yes. Jeff? Yeah, I, I'm not terribly surprised they came down in this. Um, you know, I think we've been referring to this class as a jack inhibitors when we prescribe the medications. And I think the FDA is erring on the side of caution by lumping all the drugs into a same class, just how we, how we uh, refer to them. I think biologically, there certainly could be an argument that there are different jack kinases that these target and those potentially could have different biologic effects. There's other kinases like the TIC2, um, which certainly some you know, uh, drugs upcoming inhibit that molecule. Are they really that different from JAKs just because we call them TIC2? They're really in the same JAK family. So, uh, you know, erring on the side of caution, but um, I think there is a little, there's going to be more work to be done to really see whether this is a true class effect or whether it's related to the particular JAKs that are targeted with TOFA. So we know this actually is a um, class effect in, in, in so far as at the time that the FDA came up with its announcement in February of this year, um, in the months that were to follow, soon thereafter, um, TOFA was up for a new indication for ankylosing spondylitis. UPA was up for a new indications in psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. There are more indications for other drugs and these drugs, baricitinib for uh, atopic dermatitis. All that was put on hold while the FDA was making their analysis of this data. So we, at that point, they were saying, well, we're worried about all these drugs. So maybe that kind of goes along with what you're saying. Rachel, what did you think when you first heard this? I mean, I, I kind of shared Bill's initial gut response, which was, um, I was shocked, but I should have seen it coming based on all the other data, as you just mentioned, Jack. But I do wonder if some of this will piecemeal out um, over time with just understanding a little bit more about these particular cytokines and how they are effective. But um, I'd say it, I was shocked and I worry about access. Right. Kat? I rolled my eyes. I mean, it's not gonna change how I practice things to be honest with you, because you know, there's a reason why I put the patient on a JAK inhibitor. You know, This could end up you know, 10 years down maybe not much of a signal compared to what we're seeing now. It's kind of like the lymphoma and TNF story, or it could be like the myocarditis and the COVID vaccine story. Um, I think that this is a great group of drugs. It's really done amazing. I mean, I've seen patients where they failed TNF inhibitors, failed multiple classes of DMARGE biologics that, you know, the JAKs work. So to me, the real threat is active disease. I'm not worried about this. But you know, um, these drugs really work. These drugs are really popular. These drugs are gaining momentum. That's not that dissimilar from the COX-2 inhibitors, which same kind of small frequency events happen. And man, two, or th two out of the three are taken off the market. Do any of you foresee something like that happening here? I don't. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't either. All right, um, Jeff. We we you know you, you're we're handcuffed by the this announcement because we get these edicts about worry, worry, worry. Have a careful discussion. Patients should review the medication guide. 
And none of that is in perspective as far as actual numbers. What do you think from what you've known so far? And again, the FDA has not released the numbers. The EMA has released some numbers on this topic. What do you think is the real magnitude here that people need to be aware of? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd like to see a peer-reviewed publication to really delve into this. You know, from the initial TOFA press release, um, I'll mention that they they use higher doses for the use. You know, the UC indications 10BID, and that is a, an entire arm of the trial, which as rheumatologists we don't typically use that dose. Um, but they really looked at uh, you know 1,500 patients per arm, and um, there were on average around three and a half to four years of follow-up. And within the TNF group, there were 37 events and there were 10 to 14 excess events for MACE with tofacitinib, which actually was not statistically significant, but it was beyond the upper bounds of non-inferiority. So it's one of these not non-inferior sort of things. And is that noise, is it maybe the TNFs might actually have a little bit of a protective effect? I'll mention again that we use this typically after TNF failure. So if you really follow the data, it makes you want to choose TNF, but it doesn't really guide what you do after TNF. Now for the, for the cancer, there actually was statistically significant. It was a bit higher magnitude of association. Um, we're talking 18 to 20 more excess events among 1,500 patients with three and a half to four years of follow-up. Um, I think that's one where you might take a bit more seriously, but again, I think half of the arm, half of the study was on a higher dose than we as rheumatologists would typically consider. And again, we're typically using it after TNF failure. So um, it is, again, erring on the side of caution, but it's a big stretch to say that this truly exists and that it also exists for the entire class of drugs. So... I was looking into the data behind this uh, a little bit earlier, and there was a review um, that was looking at what is the underlying risk of thrombosis in RA. And so that ranges between four to 10 per 1,000 patient years. And that baricitinib, that four milligrams, um, they were looking at all the studies that came out for baricitinib. I think they said that it was about five per 1,000 patient years. So it really falls in that range. Now, are we selecting the patients for the oral study? I, I actually, we were one of the sites for the oral study and conducted the study in our patient population. Yes, these patients were smokers, they were over age 50. But the one thing I know about these patients was, you know, if their RA bothers them, they'd rather take the medicine than, you know, worry about the cardiovascular risk. And in fact, you know, they would take our medicine more so than they would take the cardiologist's medicine. So, you know, we don't, have, there's so many other confounders that we don't know about. Um, so to me, yes, there is some smoke. Um, am I gonna totally take this whole class of drug away? Absolutely not. That, that would be, you know, just unethical in my opinion. Well, I wonder as well, because of the smoke that you're pointing out and the not yet statistically significant differences, if you did this trial another time, if you'd get the same results, or if you did it, would it be like the World Series? You'd have to get the same results four out of seven. Um, it's it's just funny. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, Bill. And I made that in the, yesterday's video on this. It's uh, to me, it's a lot like the Fabuxistat. Um, drug development program where they flip-flopped on four different studies back and forth as to which was the more 
um, risky drug for cardiovascular outcomes comparing for buxostatalopurinol. And depending on the trial, you know, if we repeated this trial, would we get the same results? Um, probably not. You know, I think that there's a good chance we may not get the same result with the exact same sites even. I mean, it's really, it, we're, we're, as you, when you get to, uh, I mean, statistical significance is a little bit more meaningful as Jeff points out, but you know, this not being non-inferior um, just allows them to say, well, there were more events there and we, we have to worry about that to some degree. And like you said, Bill, this is, this is a safety issue. Um, let's, uh, Jeff, what do you think? Again, I wanna just, may, let, just let you talk, but you know, so there's a moving target here. RA causes a higher risk of lymphoma and of, uh, of cardiovascular events and infection and whatnot. And if these drugs work, they slide the risk back. And are we looking at one drug doing a better job than another drug? And, 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 may, and what's the constitutive numbers in that particular patient population? It gets really hard to figure out what these results yeah. mean. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, you know, the study was done with this purpose in mind to look at safety. And if it established safety, we'd all be singing its praises. So I think you do have to take the results somewhat seriously. You know, this was pre-specified and inferiority margins were already there and it, it missed on both marks. So uh, to me, I certainly want to bring it up to my patients to let them know about it. It doesn't mean I'm not going to prescribe it, but uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a little disingenuous to just sort of discount the entire results. Um, and certainly it's a randomized trial. So the distribution of smoking and other risk factors are going to be balanced. Um, and but maybe it only maybe this only applies to that population that already has risk factors because it was enriched for those patients to have those kinds of outcomes. So I would like to hear what you're hearing from your patients, Kat. My patients um, have asked me about it, and I tell them that this is the potential risk. And um, I said that, you know, there's actually three very important risks that you're totally ignoring, which is obesity, not exercising, and you're smoking. Why not let's modify those risks, particularly since TOFA is actually working for you? But, you know, a lot of patients, even when they hear the risks, they don't want to switch, especially if the medicine's working for them. It's convenient, it's quick on, quick off. I mean, there's certain populations we have to worry about, like risk for infection. I'm going to use these oral jack inhibitors because it's quick on, quick off. And, you know, if a patient has a bad pneumonia or something, I know that stopping the medicine, it'll be out of their system very quickly versus, say, rituxan. So, I mean, my patients really aren't that concerned with this FDA warning, at least not yet. We've had more calls about COVID and boosters and everything else than about this topic. Bill, Rachel, are you hearing anything? So I'm getting about the same concept that you guys are. I mean, I feel the problem is disease. And if you can best control the disease, you have a better chance of an, a better outcome for a patient. So it's not changing the way I'm prescribing and my patients tend to know that from me. Yeah, I don't think uh, it's it's going to change in, in that regards. I mean, I, I, there are some patients that are just so susceptible to what they hear, and those are the ones that are calling and saying, well, that means I have to stop the medicine, right? And you say, no, that's the worst thing you're going to do is stop the medicine. It's going back to the COVID talk at the, that we had uh, with patients a year ago. And I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to talking with the patients about this. And uh, I, I think they just have to learn to put it in perspective with the other risks for the other agents, along with, and most importantly, how well they're doing. You know, so when these things happen, 
what Bill's just said is true. The ones who aren't coming in are going to hear it on the news and they're going to stop their drug and they're not going to call you. And they're going to come in in six weeks or nine weeks and they're going to tell you they stopped the drug and you're going to go, why didn't you call? But the good news is at that point, they will now be able to make the decision. <laughs> being off this drug has consequences. And you're worried about the consequences of being on it. Let me give you some perspective on that. So, you know, I don't like those scenarios. I think it would be great if there was a way we could reach out to all of our patients and say, you know, um, call my office for the fact sheet on this or for guidance and, and that sort of thing. But I think that that's the scenario that's likely to pay out, play out. Um, recognizing that the FDA has said in their guidance that physicians should you know, do a risk-benefit analysis when considering these or continuing these medicines. Um, they were very strong in saying that you should start and fail a TNF inhibitor before you use a JAK inhibitor. Very unlike the FDA to do anything like that. So my question to you is how is this going to change how you use JAK inhibitors or how you treat RA um, with that in mind? Jeff? Well, I think since the press release came out, this has been, I'm sure we all have our banter when we're starting new medications. And this is part of the spiel as far, I have to tell the patient that there is this possible risk. Um, there's some patients that are fine with that. There's some patients that might want to use one of the other mechanisms of action before. Um, and certainly I think the jacks have been migrating up earlier and earlier in the order of medications. I think it's been very hard to get jacks right off right after methotrexate failure to begin with. But to me, you know, I'm not even considering it until they've tried a TNF. So basically after TNF failure, um, I'm telling patients about this possible risk. Many are fine with moving ahead. Many would, some, a very small minority might, have, might choose a different mechanism, um, which might be a reasonable choice given that uh, there are plenty of good options in RA at least. Kat, new starts? Um, I think, that yes, I mean, I would present them just like Jeff would of all the options they have, risk benefit ratio. I mean, one of the big emphasis about JAX is, you know, the risk for shingles. To me, I think the risk for shingles is much higher compared to the risk of thromboembolic events or cancer, right? So I would say that a lot of insurances currently will require a TNF failure before they will allow for a JAK inhibitor. So it's kind of like a mute point for me. Now I could write, an appeal letter saying that this patient absolutely has a needle phobia and will not take anything of a biologic they've already failed their methotrexate or whatever DMAR they have had. So um, it is a big discussion with the patient. I think it's an important discussion with the patient, but you got to meter it by like other risk and side effects associated with the class of the drug. Bill, does this change any of your I, I think it's only going to change it in that uh, rare circumstance where I may have had the opportunity to use a jack first. I mean, we generally have to uh, go jump through other hoops as well. I mean, and certainly the TNFs are very, very good drugs. And so I don't feel bad about that. Uh, but there are patients, I think, that whether they're needle phobia or what, that can do extremely well with first-line therapy. And I, I hope that I still talk to them about that at the beginning. And it's not that you're an hour behind and you're, you know, have 12 more patients out there or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would like that flexibility to still use it. Although I still have no problems with 
uh, a little arm twisting to use a DNA applicator. So my last question for the panel is, you know, everyone has um, nine years of experience with um, the JAK inhibitor class um, and it's grown uh, in more recent years. Um, and now we have a new wrinkle in, in our therapy. Um, but now this complicates how we manage high-risk patients who have active disease. High-risk patients with active disease need you know, more than first-line therapy. So all these warnings are about high-risk patients with active disease. So what will you do with high-risk patients, Rachel? I mean, I think the elephant in the room remains that if you have high disease activity, you're already putting these patients at risk, either undertreated or not treated in terms of their rheumatoid or potentially a, a, some of the other indications that we'll see, whether it be in germ, GI, or in rheumatology. And I, I hope that I will always have the, um, the good mindset to keep those that is the, the kind of crux of why I'm presenting a patient with the opportunities. But I think shared decision-making is still very important. I think that there is definitely gonna be a spin um, uh, depending on who you're talking to and, and how um, they interpret information. But I, I don't know that this is gonna change what I do for high-risk patients because this class has changed the way that we see rheumatoid arthritis patients and having a discussion about low disease activity and remission. Jeff, for you? Um, I guess a, a, a slight wrinkle that I think about, and I'm curious of others' thoughts, you know, this, um, you know, the, the data are in tofacitinib, and I think we're a bit skeptical that this, you know, for sure translates to other JAK inhibitors. Does this make you want to use, you know, upadacitinib? instead of TOPA. Um, I think that's kind of come in my mind a, a bit, whereas before I felt like it was a little bit of a jump ball, but you know, maybe the efficacy is a bit better for UPA. You know, it hasn't been as rigorously studied for safety, but uh, um, does this make you less reluctant to, to, to prescribe TOPA as a pair compared to other JAK inhibitors if, that was, if you do mm. decide to use a JAK? The quest for guilt-free prescribing. Um, <laughs> makes us play lots of games in our head. Um, Kat, will you play any of those games? I play them all the time, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, like the efficacy data with um, UPA um, seems to be better than TOFA. So I had been kind of changing my prescribing pattern already based on that kind of data. Um, so I, I really appreciate that Jeff brought that up. And I still think that I need more data. Yes, this is a randomized controlled trial. It was an RA, but do we have a randomized controlled trial for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, you know? So why are we encompassing this for all diseases? And I just, I don't know. I just feel like there's just not enough information to throw, you know, this whole class of drug under the bus. And yes, we have to warn our patients because that's our due diligence. Well, but, but I'm gonna, now I'm going to ask you the hard question that I want everyone to end with. Do you agree with the FDA decision to make this announcement and to implicate TOFA and the other two? Yes or no? Not a 12-minute discussion, yes or no? <laughs> no. Yeah, I say no as well. 
Jeff, you want to guess? Yes, just because they've clearly always looked at this as a class effect and the study was done with safety purpose in mind. So, you know, it was clearly, you know, the, the study did not meet its endpoints. So I think to err on the side of caution is, is really what the FDA had wrote, laid, laid out. I'm going to say yes with Jeff because it'll make it balance 50-50, right? But um, hell, and why not? The, and that puts the pressure on me to do the swing That's right. Yes. Yeah. And I'll say we've run out of time, folks. That concludes our panel discussion. Um, thanks very much to the panelists for um, lending their insight to this discussion. And uh, again, this is a complex topic that we should talk about. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.